Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. I am really excited for today's incredible panel because returning to the roundup is highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. It's great to see you again. Good morning. Great to be with you. Also returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign, and she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as the president of the 2020 DNC. Great to see you again, Liz, and welcome back. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me and really looking forward to today's conversation. Also returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, and Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, it's wonderful to see you again. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me back with all these fun, exciting new people. On this week's roundup, the culture war vulnerabilities top Democratic campaign brass are warning the party about ahead of the midterms, the latest on Russia positioning to invade Ukraine, the evolving Canadian vaccine mandate protests, and the many Americans who are standing in solidarity. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we're going to talk about the walls closing in on Donald Trump and what that means for him and for the Republican Party. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get that plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. On Tuesday, Politico reported that Democrats' own research shows some battleground voters described the party as preachy, judgmental, and focused on culture wars. Over the last few weeks, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, has been recommending a new messaging strategy to endangered House Democrats and their teams. In these presentations, the DTRIP party officials and operatives used polling and focus group findings to argue that Democratic candidates can't ignore culture war attacks from Republicans, from critical race theory to defunding the police. According to a Politico piece, the DCCC's internal polling from late January showed Democrats trailing Republicans by four points on a generic ballot. A generic ballot is a question on a survey that basically just tests party favorability. The Democrats found that they could regain that ground if they pushed back on the Republican attacks. The presenters encouraged Democrats who were faced with a defund the police attack to reiterate their support for police. If they're hit on open borders or amnesty for immigrants, the advice was to talk about their efforts to keep the border safe. And the DCCC operatives warned that if Democrats didn't respond to Republican hits, the lead increases to 14 points, which is catastrophic if you look at the House map. Politico also reported that the polling showed the culture war hits were most effective with center-left voters, independents, and Hispanic voters. Demographic groups Democrats are going to need to attract to have any chance at keeping their slim majority in November. The pollsters also said, quote, Democrats need to demonstrate they fully understand and care about the stressors in people's lives, end quote, and focus on issues without stoking divisive cultural debates. Susan, why don't you lead off? What was your take on this strategy they presented? 
Well, it's desperately needed. Um, I, I touched on this one, I think the last time I did a roundup, which is Democrats have to stop defending and start defining. They're always defending whatever the Republicans are throwing out. And that works really well for Republicans, frankly. They need to define the education issue. They need a response, but a not just a response, but a an answer to some of the things that the Republicans throw out, whether it's critical race theory or anything else or book bans. And they can give a aggressive verbal response, not a physical one, but they need to show that they are relatable. They understand what people are going through. And a great example of this is what happened in San Francisco just this week with the school board uh, members, the three of them being recalled, basically, with 70 percent of the vote. And this is left versus left left. This isn't Republicans were not involved. Let's make that clear. And what happened was, is people said, I need my kids to get into school. They need an education. Like, stop worrying about what the names of the schools are and start focusing how to get my kids back in the classroom. When there was in San Francisco, I think, was the last people to have kids go back into the classroom. And that is just a disconnect from parents and reality. So show parents that you care. There are responses, but they are letting the Democrats often let the Republicans define what the issues are and then are constantly just trying to explain themselves away. Yeah, that LA Times article that detailed uh, what had just happened in San Francisco really stood out to me because this is, uh, and Democrats are calling it sort of, you know, uh, a three-alarm warning um, for for what's to come if they don't get their act together here. The, The members were ousted for multiple reasons, and one of them was that they were spending so much time worrying about renaming the schools as opposed to actually getting kids back in the schools. Um, Liz, the presentation put it pretty bluntly and said that voters think Democrats are not making good use of their majority. But now that we're in an election year when most progress typically comes to a halt in Congress, are there any cards left on the table to, quote unquote, use the majority before uh, before the midterms um, you know, to mitigate this perception? Yeah, it's it's so interesting you you bring up that specific quote wrong because I was going to mention that that there were three parts of the presentation at least what has been reported and having spent time in DC it is obviously no surprise that this report was leaked and I actually think it's very helpful for people outside of the building of the DCCC to really understand what's going on here. Look, if if people think that Democrats are not making good use of their majority, to me that's the ball game, right? Because voters will go to the polls And they will say, we gave you an opportunity. You had the majority. And what did you do with it? I think the other quotes that are really interesting is that it says Democrats need to demonstrate they fully understand and care about the stressors in people's lives. So back to Susan's point, I mean, it's it's all about making it relevant to what mothers and fathers and children and, you know, workers of all different classes are going through on a daily basis in this country. I think it's also interesting that it says the polls show that the vast majority of Americans believe we are on the wrong track. And so I think having to fight that back is is going to be really tough. Ron, honestly, this really makes me think of the 2020 election when um, the leadership of the Lincoln Project was sitting around a table and saying, you know, do we have our messaging really go on a COVID track or a culture track? And I remember vividly you and Mike and others were saying, this is a culture war. You know, we can talk about COVID till we're blue in the face. Um, 
but we are in a culture war. And so messaging specifically around those issues, that's the win or the lose strategy. Um, and I think the bigger problem is you can no longer run on the issues. You know, you can't talk about all of the great things that you can do or, you know, will will even consider doing. You have to talk about what is relevant in people's lives immediately. And I think the DCCC presentation shows that. I think quickly to your question, what can Democrats do? Um, I don't know if it is anything legislatively at this point, quite honestly. I think it's so much about community engagement and messaging, really getting back into your districts and your states and making real connections with the people you represent because they want to see you and they want to know what you're doing and they want to hear it from you directly. So for me at this point, I think it's less about a legislative agenda and more about a community engagement push. I'd yeah. Say. And if I could just jump in on that, Please like do. I couldn't agree more with what Liz is saying about those legislators needing to get into their districts and they should be talking about the issues and not taking the bait on some of the cultural national issues. And the DCCC and the DNC should be if they're going to touch it, let them do it at 30,000 feet, but let the and let the super PACs do whatever they're going to do. But by Every means necessary. If a, if a legislator is not out there knocking on a door and, and, and speaking to a group, because now we're in a situation where we can, it's a wasted opportunity. 100 mm-hmm. percent. So on Monday, uh, The New York Times published an, an opinion piece from David Axelrod, the senior strategist on Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, and uh, and later a senior advisor to the president. The piece was titled, Mr. President, It's Time for a Little Humility. And he, in it, he recommends that President Biden show the American people that he understands what we've been through over the last two years and that there is a clear path forward. And this, by the way, is all with the backdrop of the State of the Union being frantically prepared by White House speechwriters right now. It's not for several more weeks, but they're, they're feverishly working on it right now. Axelrod wrote, quote, they will want to hear less about his, Biden's, transformative legislation than the specific practical steps Mr. Biden has taken and is recommending to help reduce inflation, curb violent crime, and of course, effectively confront any future waves of the virus. They want it to be less about him than us. What did you all make of Axelrod's advice? Molly, do you want to lead in? Yeah, you know, as 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 not the political strategist in the group, uh, at least not for American domestic issues, um, I think... Uh, on domestic and on foreign issues, which is obviously what I track more, there has been an element of tone deafness from this administration that they've been really slow for an administration that is obviously watching polling and opinion and you know criticism of them uh, in detail every day. They've been really slow in responding to some of this. Um, in ways that you then start wondering, well, is this just the president and an inability to, uh, you know, take advice from people around him, or is it a broader tone deafness issue? Um, so I'm very curious. Not really believing the State of the Unions are in a critical national speech anymore because there's so much media all the time. But I am very curious how they decide to position that because we know how Republicans will spin it and, you know, it'll be something about truckers or something, but like oppression, you know, the tyranny of, of democratic wokeness or something. But um, I'm very curious to see how he approaches this issue of trying to address a nation, trying to address the idea of values and how we defend those domestically and abroad, um, how much they're going to try to fuse this package together 
because you see elements of what they keep trying to uh, put forth as the case of the administration. But I feel like there's still some critical gel missing between components of what they're trying to do, um, both in how they're approaching it strategically in terms of legislation and, and communications to the, to the American people. And I think in general on comms, I just am very frustrated with this administration in just about every category. Um, and it matters so much, just like how this case is presented to the American people in this cacophony of craziness that we live inside. Um, and I feel like there's been some really big missed opportunities and a lot of very backhanded, you know, we got this, you know, we're the best at this. And, and people hear that in how they approach it. And that is, I think, a lot of what's resonating with independent voters like me uh, in a way that's not positive and could have a bad reaction in terms of how people are looking at the midterms. Liz, how are you thinking about how well-suited Joe Biden is to meet this type of moment as president, given not just the domestic things that we're talking about and uh, and his 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 numbers in the tank at the moment, uh, but also you know the challenges we're, we're going to get to in the next segment, but the foreign policy yeah. challenges that are sort of swirling all around him. What did you make of Axelrod's advice? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, when Molly was just speaking, I was thinking about when I was last on the roundup with you and Mike, when when the president had given kind of that first year in office address and we were giving him grades. And I said, honestly, I think the Biden administration deserves a C plus. And it is not because of their policies and you know their efforts, but it's really because of their communication. So to Molly's point, you can be doing a great job if you are not messaging that um, to your voters you could argue that it is all for nothing. Um, and I and I know we have, you know, Susan and, you know, amazing communications expert on, so I'm very curious for her thoughts on this. But as Molly was speaking as an independent voter who's, you know, focused maybe more so on foreign instead of domestic policy, just even hearing her speak, like that is a voter that Joe Biden has to reach. And so when I did read the Axelrod piece, my first thought, Ron, was, God, I hope somebody in the I White House is reading this, this right because now. I thought it was so well written. I could not have agreed with it anymore. And I know I'm an Obama Democrat, but it wasn't even that. It was just he really hit it in a way that I wish Joe Biden would just pick up that article and, quite frankly, read it, um, read it when he's in the chamber. I think that when Axelrod says in this piece, the state of the union is stressed. I think he could not be more spot on. And I think that, you know, even to what Susan was talking about with parents and schools and masks, you know, people are thinking in those very, I want to say small terms, not to say small minded, but you're really focused on your nucleus. You're focused on what's happening in your house, in your school, in your zip code. And that's kind of where your image is right now. So I know we're going to get to um, talking about Russia and, and other things, you know, soon and Russia and Canada. But I think, folks, if we're on this podcast every week to talk about what the voters are thinking, I think the State of the Union address is going to be important in that Joe Biden does a little bit of what he did for that one year, um, you know, speech that he that he gave at the White House where he said, where he admitted mistake. And while he did speak a little bit more favorably um, about his administration thus far than I would have liked, and I would have liked to see him use more verbiage as, as Axelrod uses in this piece, I do think admitting fault or mistake or shortcomings will be really, really important. Um, and, and I think he does have an oppor opportunity to do it, and, and he might. So I'll be looking forward to seeing that. So, Susan, my question to you, and like, Wrap all this up for us. Um, 
White House speechwriters, as I mentioned, are already burning the midnight oil, working on drafts of the State of the Union. What in particular are you hoping to see or not see in Biden's very first State of the Union address? Well, I had a slightly different take on Axelrod's piece, and I agree in principle and what it what it laid out, except that's from 2008. This administration is trying to not only govern like it was 2008, where the president can use some of his relationships, but they're communicating like it's 2008 and they're always lagging. So what I think this state of the union should be is very forward thinking. I don't know if you have to admit so many mistakes because frankly, the Republicans will just grab onto it so much and I don't think it will resonate with with voters because they already know that. Like, it's one thing to be humble when you kind of have a higher poll number, when you when you say like, yeah, I know I made some mistakes. Yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with that. I think, Liz, that goes a long way with with people who are likely to support the president to get them to come out to vote. But I don't know if it gets that suburban voter out there who is a center right leaning independent to really get jazzed up. This administration has been behind the ball on everything in communicating with the public, except for Ukraine, which we're going to get into. When it came to Afghanistan, they were constantly explaining the decision process. They weren't informing us of what was happening. When it came to um, inflation, the same thing. The president held a press conference on how he's going to combat inflation, but it had been in the top story in the newspaper for two weeks prior. And of course, when it comes to testing, they couldn't have been more far behind if they tried. And they got it out there. So these are things that they can start to say that they're trying to fix and do. But this State of the Union I'm sorry, you got to bring a little of the orange man in here and say, this is what I want to do and this is what I'm going to plan to do. People, obviously, he was elected once. Like, this does resonate. People need to feel like, okay, he's going to go out there and fight for me. He he realizes there's problems. Yes, we came out of a pandemic, but he has a way to come out of this instead of explaining what has happened. He keeps being in the past. Susan, just what what you said, it just made me think of, um, you know, what appears in the State of the Union, how that will impact different voters. I actually I, I wasn't even thinking in these terms before. I think I don't know if you have to pretty aggressively look at your polling before writing your State of the Union. But I think maybe the question is not only do I want to be forthcoming in everything that we're working on, but who are we trying to appeal to in the State of the Union? Is it making sure our people turn out in these critical midterms? Is it the persuasion? So I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think the way that he, um, you know, portrays the state of the union, whether whatever words he uses, I think it will really have to be with, with a microscope on who are the people that we're trying to really touch on this one. So I think that's interesting. All right, let's move to Russia. On Tuesday, President Biden gave an update on the rising tensions on the Russian and Ukrainian border. In his speech, Biden said that despite Russia's assertion that they were pulling back troops, U.S. intelligence hadn't confirmed it. And by Wednesday evening, a senior administration official said that Moscow has actually added more than 7,000 combatants in the last few days. And that's according to the New York Times. Lieutenant General Jim Hokenhold, the British chief uh, 
The British chief of defense intelligence also released a statement to the same effect. And this comes just a couple of days after reports that Putin signaled he was open to talking more. And Russia's foreign minister said on Monday that diplomacy is, quote, far from exhausted. So, Molly, I, okay, first of all, I want to know how we should be thinking about this additional troop buildup after Russia said they were, you know, pulling back troops. But to me, there are two extremely important things uh, I think have been glaringly missing from the way most mainstream outlets have been covering this event. Um, and, And I want to lay them before you and have you react to them if you agree or disagree. But first, in my mind, is the fact that Putin has already scored a major victory here, even if this doesn't turn into a hot war because he has successfully captured the intention of the entire developed world. The, the, the constant narrative, the constant will he or won't he speculation across the news media seems to me to only accrue to his advantage. And then second is that I haven't seen a simple direct explanation to the American people as to why they should care if Putin invades and what the global consequences could be, including here at home. And Biden did a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of this in his in his speech. There are a couple of sort of, you know, uh, sort of moral reasons that he laid out. Uh, nations have a right to sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, you know, and at the very end, there's a mention that there could be an impact on our energy prices. So we are taking active steps to alleviate the pressure on our own energy markets and offset rising prices. But that's basically it. And Anyway, I lay that at your feet. Tell me if you agree, disagree. Those are the two big like pieces of messaging that I wish I was seeing in mainstream reporting and I haven't seen at all. Yeah, I think uh, there's going to be a, a challenging reporting, and I air quotes that, uh, landscape on this going forward. It is very clear the Biden administration has activated their like full court, we believe our own PR strategy. Everyone must write about how wonderful our strategy has been uh, in a very Obama administration-like way, that same feel of like, just praise us for what we have done, uh, press push, which is fine in the sense that some of this is positive. Um, But it's the same challenge of, but are you reading your press release too much and not actually doing strategic work that needs to get done? And I think um, the, the, the second point you made about, uh, is anybody trying to make a case to the American? No, no one is trying to make the case to the American people on this. And as much as Biden's speech got praise and it was not a bad speech, like I'm not going to criticize uh, the fact that he did the speech or, or most of the content thereof, um, this sort of like, well, there might be economic pain for Americans on this was such a weak tea. BS thing to kind of squish in there when what the administration came into office saying and campaigned on and had their democracy summit about is this idea that we have these common values that we need to fight for in the world because nobody else is going to do it, right? Like we're the leader of that. No one can take our place doing that. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. The reason he can't say that in a stupid 10 minute speech is because they don't have a strategy for that and they actually aren't backing it up with anything substantive. And you see it in this tortured messaging, even in the speech on Ukraine, about Ukraine, which is, we're great here inside NATO, where in November and December, there was a lot of disunity, a lot of uneasiness about the the messaging from the administration. People were extremely nervous uh, about what we were doing and if we were getting too reset-y and like all of these things. I do think a lot of that has come back to the center 
there's been tremendous military momentum within the alliance to move resources to the Eastern Front uh, of the alliance, which is extremely positive. It shows that, uh, you know, we're serious about this. Should there be anything that spills into our territory? The problem is we very clearly put that barricade behind Ukraine. And it's like, good luck, guys. We know that you're the front lines of fighting for democracy, but we're back here in our great military alliance. And you guys are over there. And like, we're not really sure how it's going to turn out, but we're going to go on TV and keep saying there's a slaughter coming. But I guess we're just going to sit there and watch it from back here in our comfortable NATO territory. And I know that's not how they intend it to be seen. But this idea that they are making themselves observers to a coming slaughter, when they are really leaning into this, the war is coming, we see it, it will come. And the Ukrainians aren't actually really sure why they're doing this. But like, how on earth can you justify to yourself and the American people that you are the defenders of the values of democracy at home and abroad? When what you are saying is the country that is the front line of this fight, where 43 million people are willing to bleed for it, is on its own. When we, are, when we see the war coming, when Russia has said the war is coming, and we have nothing to offer you except some javelins, like some, you know, some, some anti-tank weaponry. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's really the message? And this is why there's this discordance, I think, at home and abroad, where we see this giant strategic need uh, that is not being filled by action from the White House. Okay, so before we go to Liz and Susan, I, I could you please uh, sort of as succinctly as you can lay out what the potential consequences might be if this turns into a hot war for Americans, right? Why yeah, should yeah. people care? What could happen here? And gas prices are what, like a piece of that. Just unpack it a little bit so an average listener can understand what we're looking at that tends to get lost in the, you know, tanks are over here, troops are over here. Like there's an ongoing TikTok drama um, playing in the media, but like, why should somebody in, 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 you know, sitting anywhere in America care what happens next? So I think if you want to look at the economic piece, it is not just energy prices might go up and they have oil prices are higher than they have been in like a decade right now. And Russia's super happy about that. Just FYI. Uh, but I think, if we're looking at a full land war invasion of the European country by Russia, you know, we're talking about serious global economic upheaval. Ukraine is not a small country. It has significant contributions to electronics manufacturing, defense manufacturing. Um, it will impact supply chains of things that we need and we don't pay attention to it, I know. But like that just and, and just the market upheaval of actual giant country invading, invading another sizable country in Europe is real. Um, and we are not communicating effectively enough how screwed up that is going to be for us, for stuff we need, for the things that we value. But I think the secondary, you know, the thing underneath that is then um, this is in fact the war for everything we care about, what's happening in Ukraine, all the things we say that we care about, freedom, representative government, like however you, uh, you know, align yourself in terms of your own political values, the baseline things of the stuff that we say we care about, the war for that is in Ukraine. And there's a whole bunch of countries that don't want any of these things to matter anymore. Either they want the wealthiest people to make all the decisions or the most powerful militaries to make all the decisions or these crazy authoritarian countries to make all these decisions. Um, but the system of values and the structure that we have invested in since World War II, which is this idea that representative governments are the best solution for, for defending the security 
uh, of their people, for advancing the prosperity and well-being of their people, the effects of which we have seen in the transatlantic alliance and how well everybody has done being inside NATO, being in the EU in the last 70 years, right? If you look at how much growth and, and security and blah, 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 like having a common system of values has benefited all of us tremendously. That will go away if we are not actually willing to fight for it. And not just within our alliance, um, but in the way that our alliance interacts with everyone around us and the people who want to be in that alliance. Um, because what, what your other point, Ron, was sort of this, you know, all the, momentum, all the momentum is on Putin's side is really the point. And it's true. We're totally reactive. And I think I understand, especially in the Biden team and the desire for like, you know, moral rightness on past stances, you know, America's still in this very post-Iraq war crap mindset of like, uh, don't defend freedom. Uh, actually, no one's ready for democracy. Uh, it's all too hard. Like, let's just go home and, you know, do whatever. But um, that's stupid. And it will continue to be stupid. And we need to get out of this post-Iraq war malaise where we believe we don't have uh, a place in the world that is defending people who need it. This is 40 million people who are willing to do the fight for us against Russia. And we should just give them what they need. Um, and this idea of seeing not just the crisis, because there is crisis, but that it is opportunity, not just in Ukraine, but in the entire region around Russia, in Africa, in the Middle East. Um, there's tremendous opportunity right now for the United States to advance its values in ways that are cheap, easy, and will vastly expand our security and potential prosperity in the coming century uh, against Russia, against China, against these great powers that are interested in us collapsing and dying. Um, and no one is putting a center to that activity, and it just needs to happen for us, for Europe, for our alliances uh, around the world. Um, it's super important. Sorry, that wasn't short. <laughs> no, that was that was exactly uh, that was exactly what I hope what, was hoping you would sort of set out for us. So, Susan, you know, <laughs> the, the, the pro, as Molly mentioned, the prospect of a potential invasion has already caused oil prices to rise. Uh, the New York Times is reporting that an invasion would cause the price to go over a hundred dollars a barrel, and you know Biden acknowledged that Americans would feel the effects of a Russian invasion most acutely at the gas pump. Um, but these kitchen table issues like inflation and the price of gas are going to be a huge factor in the midterm. So wrap all this together for us. What what? How are you thinking about it? Uh, you know, not not just from a communication standpoint, but also as a voter, as a as a as an American. Well, first of all, Molly, I could listen to you go on for like another hour. So that was just really interesting. Um, so from a communications point first, just to kind of set it up a little bit, I actually think the Biden administration has done well with speaking to the American public on this because it is such a complex issue. At least he's out there saying this is what we're doing. And more importantly, um, and this goes as a voter, he's highlighting that our NATO alliance and is strong. We have now everybody on board. We are working together like we couldn't do with the former guy. He broke all those alliances. Biden and, and he's Biden's had his own little hiccups along the way. But when it really comes to it, they, he, we are all together against Russia invading Ukraine. 
And that is important. I couldn't agree more about having the post-Iraq war and the post-Afghanistan be kind of people feeling like, oh, again, like, what are we doing? But it's interesting when you say all of a sudden we're sending our troops to Poland. That 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 resonates a little differently with the American public. So I think it's important that he stays on top of this, that he's doing what he does. I mean, whether when we talk about like rising costs, if we do nothing, there'll be rising costs. <laughs> if we and, and I don't know what the something is to do, because we've already said our troops are not going to stand by with Ukraine soldiers and shoot at Russians. That's not going to happen. So the only thing they can do is, and they've been talking about this, and I'd love to know Molly's uh, viewpoint on it, is the mother of all sanctions and try and stranglehold Putin. I also happen to think there's the, I think Putin's already got what he wanted. He's he's like, he's right there with the US and, and, and the European Union. Like they're all equals. So I think he has what he wants. I think he, Again, not a policy person, and I know Molly will have a lot different thing to say about this, but I, I think he can go out there and say, all right, pull back, and six months later, just wave a different flag and come back in. So he's constantly, he has us on the ropes a little. Okay, so while Molly's preparing to uh, answer your question about sanctions, Liz. Yeah, to Susan's point about, you know, Putin could wait six months and come back in. I think he's waiting maybe like six hours, right? So I think we saw a lot of language about de-escalization. And then all of a sudden today, or maybe it was yesterday, Joe Biden was saying, um, you know, this is imminent and this is happening. And it went from, you know, verbiage of all diplomatic um, options are not exhausted to this is imminent and and this is coming. So I think the uh, change has been kind of fast and furious. I also um, was just reading this morning that the deputy chief of mission was expelled from our embassy in Moscow. Um, And so I think a lot of American people, again, bringing it back to voters, like the whole world of diplomats and diplomacy and State Department, you know, that feels so foreign to a voter who's wondering if their child will stay in school due to COVID. Um, But if you look at this, your deputy chief of mission, essentially like your country's vice president in a foreign country was expelled without reason. And so to me, that doesn't, um, you know, that's not emblematic of de-escalization. So, you know, Susan, to your point where he can just kind of change his mind and he's gotten what he wanted, I I think we're seeing it in real time. Um, My only wonder is, are voters either left, right, or center, are they paying attention to something like that? And and that's what I think is is still to be seen. You know, by the way, just as a as a quick aside, it seems to me that some sort of enterprising democratic uh, operative out there should probably um, y- everybody know those uh, those those um, you know Biden stickers that people are slapping on the gas pumps with him pointing at the price tag that says "I did this." We guys, we've talked about those on the show before, but they're popping up everywhere. I saw them in California. I've seen them as I'm traveling. They're extremely effective. Uh, somebody should make a a, a, a Vladimir Putin. Uh, sticker pointing at the gas t- gas price that says, I did this, right? Or whatever, put it in Russian, I don't care. But it would actually start to deflect <laughs> away from Biden having, like, owning the responsibility for your gas. Yeah. Like, that, that would be a really great way for, uh, for, for, for people to start to fucking get that this matters. Uh, so, 100%. sorry. 
somebody go do that, <laughs> Molly. <laughs> Indeed, somebody somebody go do that. Um, uh, you know, look, sanctions fine, but as the Russian ambassador to Sweden, who is like the most Soviet ambassador remaining in the diplomatic rotation anywhere. Uh, nicely said in an interview earlier this week, we shit on your sanctions. We've been doing this a long time. It hasn't hurt our economy so far. It's actually made our economy stronger. And while that is somewhat hot air and, you know, look at us, we're fine here. Uh, they're, they, they know this is coming. They're not worried about uh, the sanctions that have been presented because as, as per usual, the most extreme uh, versions of them have been already taken off the table because we're so stupid and bad about how we negotiate with Russia. Um, sanctions are fine. I think they're important as a show of unity, which is what they have been since 2014, is to show that there is unity against Russian aggression, at least from Europe. Um, but uh, sanctions are not the issue here. The issue is multiple times since 2007, Vladimir Putin's Russia has shown it will use force, whether that be its actual physical army or crushing cyber attacks coupled with, you know, weird domestic uprising, uh, uprisings in air quotes there to destabilize security situations in countries. Vladimir Putin's Russia will use force to achieve political objectives, uh, including its entire freaking army on the border of Georgia or Ukraine when it feels like doing that, uh, or deploying to Syria to screw up the entire American strategic position in the Middle East, which we just like don't ever talk about at all. Um, and we need to understand that is what he is doing and actually understand that hard power still matters in this, in this fight. And I think one of the most frustrating Biden aside moments in the last few weeks, uh, was his like strange comment in his NBC interview about, you know, it was, it was in response to, well, if there is an invasion and Americans are left in Kiev, we'll, will we send people to get them out like we did in Afghanistan? Because it's a setup question. Like in knowing the administration has this like, we don't ever want to see Afghanistan again uh, crisis, uh, you know, thing. They, it was a bad question. But the answer to it was absolutely not. We would never do that. Uh, you know, American soldiers shooting at Russian soldiers is World War III. False, false. Anytime in Syria, American forces have come up against Russia. We have kicked their ass. We've killed a lot of them and they have fucking run for the hills. And that is because their, quote, special forces guys are actually like Wagner mercenary losers. They're not trained. Our guys can kick their butts anytime. Russia doesn't actually want to fight us. They want what they have in Ukraine, which is this perception that we're getting from social media and our media and like the, the hysteria of the discussion of this, of this military escalation, uh, that they are the mightiest army willing to use power, willing to use force. No one can freaking stop them. And that's what they've gotten out of this whole escalation cycle. And uh, that is a significant victory. And while you can give credit to the Biden administration for elements of what it has done, uh, and they deserve that, and I think they have pulled the ship back together from where they were in November, which was not great on this stuff, um, there is still this, this core aspect missing, which is we are confronting adversaries in the world. Right now, Russia, increasingly China, who will use their actual army to achieve what they want and to smash things that we want. Um, and what are we going to do about that? Because they know the entire West is in this like, eh, we don't ever want to have to use soldiers for anything again mindset. 
Um, and in the next decade is when they gain ground against that. And we're just not talking about it. We're not prepared. Um, some of our allies are great on these issues. You know, the bolts uh, really pull us forward. The polls are very good on this. Um, but then there's like Germany and France who are like faffing off doing whatever. Um, but we need to have all of us as allies, but more importantly, we as the United States, a discussion about uh, great power competition, which includes using your military in smart ways. And right now in the last year, what I've seen from this administration um, is the opposite of that, pulling back special forces deployments in the world, who should be the guys who are out there when no one else is, you know, building local partnerships, training local forces. So we don't have to do that work, you know, um, those are the ones who come back first. And it's like, what are we doing? Like, that's what those guys do, like put them out. Uh, so I just, I feel like there's this absence of how we're using our hard power uh, as intelligence gathering, as relationship building, as force projection in the world um, in, a, in a really unhelpful way. It's not that we're out there starting wars. We're not. We're trying to create security so that we do not have to come in in these emergency situations to fight these wars. And that whole piece is just absent. And the place where you see it the most right now is Ukraine, where Russia's just like, every six months, they escalate. There's a crisis. Everybody's like, oh God, what do we do? It's just this time partially because the, the Biden administration has leaned into it so much and how it's communicating to the public, uh, the perception of the escalation is uh, much more than previous ones. Um, but it's a big win for Putin right now in terms of, you know, who is mighty and who is not. Okay, I want to seize on this idea of perception for one last thread on this topic, and I want to sort of tie these things together, Liz, uh, uh, Liz and Susan. So uh, we already know that Domestic perception of another potential war is hamstringing the Biden administration's foreign policy, their decision-making on this, right? That's a, that's a major factor. The appetite for Americans to be in some kind of armed conflict in another country is, uh, is, is problematic. But given the point uh, that I made earlier, and I think that Molly just made even better, which is that Vladimir Putin's already very pleased with how this has gone so far. He he is winning a, a his own war of perception. He has scored a major victory in the way this has been covered. For him, this is this is maybe uh, entirely a PR war, right? Um, he has he is shaping perception of his, of Russia's might and power among Americans and the rest of the world, really, by this entire uh, by this entire. Um, um, show. So uh, like, I, I wonder how you both are thinking about that. This is a different kind of warfare, but it is actively the, the, the impact on public opinion at home is absolutely shaping, uh, the decisions of the Biden administration, what they, what they, you know, sort of have political cover to do here. And Vladimir Putin knows that. And I wonder what you think about this, the, the PR angle of this war. Well, Putin's winning. I mean, it's it's really that simple because he's controlling a lot of the narrative. I think it's incredibly important to recognize what Molly said about how Russia now looks like they have the strongest army. They, I mean, they have no economy to speak of, but it looks like they're a strong economy because they're willing to go do this. Like we hear, and, and gas prices are going up, and that's not hurting them, but. Um, I, it's, it's a tough thing to sell. It seems more, um, 
relatable going looking at Ukraine and Western Europe versus other places in the in the world that we've been recently. But I think that what Biden is trying to do is really use this as an exercise to show we are back on the the international stage with our allies. I think that's the point that he wants to bring to the American public. And that's the win, because there is no win. You can, I mean, could we take them? Could we go in there? Can we take them? Yeah. But to what end? What are we fighting for? And then when do you get out? And we say, like, unless you want to take over Ukraine and Russia and like make them, you know, U.S. outposts to what end? So I think from the PR aspect, the best thing that we can do is say we are back at our top position in the free world and we are strong. But you can't get into much more than that. Liz? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin got along so well, right? It's very Trumpian what he is doing. You know, will we ever know if this, you know, quote, military exercise, as he's talking about it now, was it all a, a PR stunt to get what he wanted. You know, the when when you have government officials in Ukraine saying, you know, joining NATO was just a dream and, you know, we're not going after it anymore. That is the win for Putin. I mean, he, he you know, both Molly and Susan have said it. He, he really got what he wanted. And also to Molly's point, which I had not thought about before, the Biden administration now being so proactive in their PR as a result to a lot of, I would say, flubs from the fall and, you know, early this year, um, they, I think, you know, to, to both of their points are now trying to show a strength and a control and an understanding of the issues and the scenarios to reinstill confidence in the American people. But Putin did get what he wanted and he came about it from a very Trumpian perspective. Um, they're controlling the narrative hundred percent, even, even though, um, you know, you have to argue when you look at what's happening on the ground, um, did he win in that sense? And we'll never know, but it really did come down to media coverage, social media, um, and the Biden White House diving full in to, to respond. So far, and obviously this is an, a, an actively developing uh, story, so we will watch and return to it. There's been a lot of movement in the response to the protests in Ottawa since we talked about it last week. Earlier this week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declared a national emergency aimed at ending the protests over vaccine mandates that began nearly three weeks ago in Ottawa. Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in the last half century, according to the New York Times. On Wednesday, police ordered protesters clogging Ottawa's streets to leave or face criminal charges. They also warned that anyone coming to Ottawa to join the demonstration would also be breaking the law. Under the national emergency, demonstrations that go beyond lawful protests, that's what it says, could be banned. And Trudeau said that the government would formally ban blockades in designated areas like border crossings, airports, and the capital. The Times reported that while most of the protests have been peaceful, on Tuesday, four protesters in Alberta were charged with conspiracy to murder police officers in relation to what police described as a plan to use violence if officers tried to break up a blockade. And that came just a day after police discovered a cache of weapons, including 13 long guns, handguns, multiple sets of body armor, a large quantity of ammunition and magazines and a machete. 
in trailers in Alberta. And by Wednesday, the three main border crossings that were previously impeded by protesters had been cleared. Uh, Ottawa police said on Tuesday afternoon that the number of trucks in downtown Ottawa had shrunk uh, to 360 vehicles with about 150 protesters in the streets. The deputy police chief said the police had opened 172 criminal investigations related to the protests and had charged 33 people and issued 3,000 tickets. Um, But the reason I wanted to talk about it today is sort of a different angle. The Washington Post reported that after the Super Bowl kicked off on Sunday, hackers began extracting information about donors who gave to the protesters on the site Give, Send, Go. The website's co-founder, Jacob Wells, told the Washington Post that someone posing as a donor was able to make changes that gave them admin powers. And the hack didn't necessarily reveal the donor's identity uh, because you're not required to use your real name. But the site does require donors to provide their zip code uh, to guard against fraud. And the group had raised about $9 million with half of the donations coming from Canada and the other half coming from the United States. And I want to dig into what you make of the solidarity, uh, the connection, the, 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 the Americans who are, I mean, half of the donations for a for, for a Canadian protest seems to be a very large percentage of, you know, sort of funding and support coming from the United States. And Molly, I was thinking uh, sort of particularly about you and the conversations that we've had as I was reading this, because, you know, it, it just, there, there's, there's some incongruousness, incongruousness between the lack of an appetite among uh, the, especially the extremes of both parties, as we've discussed, which also happens to be where most of the grassroots funding comes from within the United States and political system. The, the, the lack of appetite for sort of American intervention in the world for two different reasons, which you've described and we've, we've uh, sort of referenced mu- multiple times. Um, and this phenomenon, which seems to be an outpouring of support for protesters in another country standing against what they see as sort of uh, tyrannical oppression. And um, I, I want to go to you first and sort of like tease that apart for me. How, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think there's, there's two aspects of this that have been super fascinating for me. The third would be more in the information domain, but I think we can leave that alone for right now because we all kind of know how that stuff's working. But The first is really this, and we've talked about it on the show before, I know, but it's sort of the highly networked super craziness that is this entire movement now in the world. And it's like looped in all the other super craziness and like the crazy conspiratorial QAnon flavor to it has now dissolved and it has sort of elevated into this global, you know, quote unquote, anti-tyranny movement um, that is anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-shutdown, anti-public health controls, anti-equality or, you know, wokeness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, It's like anti-5G, like all of this stuff sort of smushed together in a thing, but without the same crazy seeming QAnon t-shirts as before. Um, But it is highly networked and effective and you can see pieces of it popping up all over the place. And it's like a way for this populist, anti-establishment, very narrow or very, very nakedly covering far-right 
often white identity crap, uh, you know, it's, it's everywhere now. And I think part of the reason you've seen Canada react and overreact to it the way that they have, depending on what your view is, um, is if you've been reading Canadian news the last year, there has been a steady drumbeat in left and right publications in Canada of what do we do as this country that has for our entire existence been relatively dependent on the United States for things like our economy and our security? What do we do if American democracy collapses? They actually believe this is a real potential threat given how they've been looking at what's been happening here in the last five years. Um, And so I think this reaction to crazy money from the United States is funding, and not just a protest movement in Canada, they shut down the freaking border for several days, right? And like, just the national security implications of that. Can you imagine if like, you know, some French protest movement was shutting down American borders? We'd go freaking bananas too. So of course, there's been this overreaction to this. But I think we should understand in the context of how the rest of the world sees us, which is we, the United States, have these extremists here that we're not taking seriously, who are organized, have extremely wealthy billionaire backers behind them, are effective at mobilizing grassroots support, um, and are promoting toxic uh, anti-establishment ideology into the world in ways that are challenging all democracies. No non-democracies, you will note, but all democracies in the world. Uh, And everybody else seems to be taking that a lot more seriously than we are. uh, And it's a problem. So I think that is sort of the first piece. The second piece is um, uh, I think it's been it's for me, it's this really interesting, like how the right in the United States using its much more organized and cohesive information environment uh, has been really effective at what they do in radicalizing their own people. Um, and I know we don't like to use these words, but in fact, that is what's happening is the radicalization of previously normal Americans. Um, because, you know, it's not a great narrative for your own people. It's this January 6th stuff, right? Like, no one really wants to talk about it. Like, they don't want to talk about the trials. They don't want to talk about people going to jail. They don't want to talk about, the uh, you know, how it's being exposed that, like, it was in fact much more serious and people actually were trying to kill people. Like nobody wants to talk about that. That's not a winning message. So you see this propaganda structure at the center of this, which is extremely effective and has tons of money behind it. And people like people like Peter Thiel and guys like Steve Bannon uh, engaged in it who it's like, okay, well, where's the next ring of the show in the same way Vladimir Putin takes the road show on the road when he needs to, um, this is the show, like the show of this bullshit, not really anti-tyranny, anti-tyranny fight is now on the border of the United States and Canada. So you have, you know, zero Republicans talking about the crisis of democracy in Ukraine, where Russia is trying to smash this entire country, but all of them now focused on the freaking Canadian, like really Canada, Canada is the enemy you want to fight right now, given everything going on in the world. Awesome. A plus job guys, but the effectiveness with which that narrative has been built and that my, you know, friends who I, I sort of stay in touch with who are living inside that information environment. Cause I want to know what they're seeing. They're all in on this. They totally believe this is the fight and um, that the effectiveness with which that has been built to capture the mind right now is terrifying to me, but it's been really effective. 
Susan, you got your pen out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Watch out. I got my pen. <laughs> no, I, I think that there, there is something very important when you talk about the January 6th riots and the people who were there and now looking forward. And I think what's happening in Canada is, but is a, is a one thing, one thing leading to another. And what I mean by that is in politics, when you get, um, as Liz knows, your governor or your mayor elected, when there's special elections or not your election, you send your political teams out to help other people. They may, you know, they do it on their own time. There's nothing wrong with it. I did it when I was in city government, you know, Oh, I'm knocking on doors, handing out whatever literature, Staten Island, you know, whatever. But you keep, and the reason you do that is not just to build up goodwill with other elected officials. It's to keep your people activated. So what? You get a call to go to the Canadian border. Well, why the heck not? <laughs> like, let's go. I need guns. I need this, whatever. And it's very. That's sim- exactly it. Yeah. And it's very similar to what happened on January 6th. And I believe the Bannons and the other people who were involved in this want to keep those people active. And they use the banner word, and we heard it on all the reports coming out of Canada. They use the word freedom. They're not, I mean, it's anti-vax a little, you know, shutdowns a little, but freedom is the consistent word. And I think that this is a very clever done. I disagree with it, but it's clever how they are mobilizing people. And this will be, mark my words, it's February. By October, there will be another significant group of people meddling in something somewhere. And it's going to look just like what we saw in Canada. But because I think we didn't talk about Texas and we didn't talk about Lindsey Graham, as you know, I always like to use for comic relief. (laughs) I can now use Mike Lindell. So... (laughs) <laughs> Another thing that happened on Tuesday that you were reporting out of Canada was Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, got stopped at the border with 10,000 pillows. <laughs> 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 and not allowed in Canada. <laughs> the, reason, wow. the reason he wasn't allowed is because he was not vaccinated and he did not take a PCR test. The trucker was also not allowed in because he didn't have the pre-PCR test required by by Canada. So they were denied at the border and couldn't deliver their 10,000 pillows to the truckers. So I made you laugh, which is my job. That's a good one. You did. You lightened up this segment. Um, Molly, I think you made a really good point um, about this like it's it it should just be sort of shocking and alarming to everybody that 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 Russia is not the enemy of democracy here actually Canada is and this idea that you know these people are fighting tyranny for their freedom um is just you know it's just kind of jaw dropping but I want to throw something on the table for you all to respond to. Um, Liz, maybe you can start. But you know, at the end of January, 
uh, I want to I want to sort of play a little exercise here and imagine where at least some of these people are coming from. At the end of January, Trudeau said he had no intention of meeting with the protesters, and it's now clear from what we're seeing that at least some of the protesters are people who feel like their concerns aren't being heard by the government. And I wonder how you're thinking about the way the government has responded, can respond, should respond, even if the Canadian government doesn't think they should be changing policy? How do they show that they understand that people are frustrated without incentivizing things like shutting down the capital or shutting down the border? Because I think that there is some legitimate uh, frustration with the way not just the Canadian government, but the U.S. government and different municipalities, localities all around the country have dealt with, uh, in particular, remember that this started as a mandate for uh, truckers to be vaccinated as they crossed the border. That's how it began, even though um, sort of the vast majority of the truckers were already vaccinated. So this was sort of a response to what they felt was uh, an an overreach or an, a, you know, an excessive use of of new powers that the government hadn't used in a long time or or emergency powers that the government hadn't used in a long time. So um, at the risk of incurring, you know, a tornado of of uh, of email from from listeners for even posing that question, I I think it's a legitimate question and I want uh, to hear what you all think about it. Liz, do you want to lead off? Sure. So um Okay, so I will start with all citizens should have the opportunity um, and perhaps the right to speak with the elected officials who represent them. I believe in that very strongly. It's why I worked in politics for so long. It was never that as a political fundraiser, I love begging people for millions of dollars. It's you want to elect the good guys and girls because they are in it for the right reasons, which is to represent you know those in their districts and their states, et cetera. I think that perhaps Trudeau, and I wasn't following it, you know, obviously super closely from the very beginning, but I wonder if perhaps Trudeau kind of refused this meeting because in the back of his head, he's thinking, you know, I don't negotiate with terrorists kind of deal. And so when folks have weaponry, perhaps that is the category he put them into and said, that is not going to be a productive meeting, nor is it a meeting that I would entertain. I wonder if in that moment, he or anyone from his team could have said, we are willing to have a dialogue under these conditions. I think that would have been very proper. I think also very possible. And I don't know why that step wasn't taken. Um, Again, I wasn't following it very closely at the beginning. So there is a chance that maybe there was kind of some discussion about how to have a discussion. But if so, we haven't really seen much about that. And I do believe it is up to his staffers, right? You need to surround yourself with a good team when you're an elected official. It was up to his staffers to say, let's figure out not just how to make you look good and powerful and protect the country, but how are we going to address this head on so we beat the PR battle? And so these individuals who do feel activated how do we make sure that they feel heard, but that they also go home? And I don't know that those conversations are happening in the Trudeau office. I think they're a very savvy bunch. So I'm, I'm you know, very interested in learning more 
about what happened there. But if I can um, just go off on a little bit of a tangent here on the story as a political fundraiser and understanding how millions of dollars can be raised for causes in different countries and how, you know, half of the sponsorship could come from Americans. People are angry. I know that sounds so juvenile and so to the point, but people are pissed. And I won't use any other words past that because I promised my mother that I wouldn't curse on this podcast ever again. <laughs> but what I will say is... Tell your mother hello. Yeah. <laughs> what I will say is in reading that article, it was really interesting to me to understand or sorry, to learn about the, um, the memo lines when people made their donations. Because you can send... 50 bucks, you can send a thousand bucks, you can give your proper name or not, which is different than political fundraising where you have to provide employer occupation, full legal name, address, et cetera. This is very different. So it's kind of the wild west and anything can go. And the fact that they reach $9 million is also something we should all be extremely concerned about along with what zip codes, you know, the, the money came from. But on two of the memo lines, I found it really interesting. The first one that stuck out to me was a woman um, said, I believe we are falling off the cliff to communism. So she gave her hard-earned money because she felt that she was doing whatever she could from her home in wherever United States of America, in, you know, I think she might have been a California donor. She was giving her hard-earned cash away because she feels that she is helping to combat communism. Another, um, and then there was a line in the article that said, mixed in with positive messages. However, there were some with a more menacing tone. And this is where the January 6th, you know, shadow is not literally going anywhere. It said, I'd rather pay support to this movement now than pay for bullets later. And they take this donation, right? Someone is sitting at home thinking, if I give this money now, I'm not going to have to go and shoot someone that I disagree with. So, I know that with our midterms coming up um, in the U.S., I know that folks are not going to want to run on January 6th, especially in swing districts, especially in these center-right districts. No one's going to want to be running on January 6th, but there are a lot of people sitting at home that think about it every day and what they can do to continue the mission and to stay activated and to move forward. And will those be you know, Joe Biden voters? Probably not, never, ever. But we got to think about how we're talking to them. And when they look on TV and see what's happening in Canada, how are we how are we in our country really talking about what's going on? I think, you know, Molly and, and Susan have done a great job bringing it to like the tactical perspective, the PR perspective. It's like, when is this messaging about what's really going on going to come out? So I think that's still to be seen. Great answer. Um, really great answer. Susan. Um, to you, and then Molly, maybe you can land the plane on this question. Well, I think at this point, it's important to look at in part how this evolved and why we're talking about it. The protests, they were real. And, and there were people out there who were truly upset. Their response was extreme, but in fact, it was small. And then when you started looking at, the, you know, the truckers were out there in force, but then when you looked at the other people coming in, I think that Trudeau, frankly, misread the scene thinking there's not a lot of people there. Like it was just, a, there was a lot of literally loud horns. And then they said they couldn't do the horns. And then they had the cranks up and down of certain, I don't know, they were making a lot of noise and, and really ticking off people in the area, but it wasn't. It, the U.S. certainly wasn't writing about it. It wasn't real news. It wasn't a way of um, 
get, getting people, you know, as it wasn't a political activity. And then things started to change. And the buy-in from the U.S., from certain elements, I think that Trudeau should have seen that coming or at least been there to respond immediately when it became a U.S.-Canada issue, because it did. And that's where he maybe it wouldn't he wouldn't have had to go as far as he he did with emergency orders and letting it escalate to what it was. But boy, he left that door wide open for for American protesters to come in. And I'm all for it. Like you want to do good, peaceful protesting. But at the same time, it was like they were fueled by a certain few people on you know, conservative propaganda TV, as far as I'm concerned, to go there with no agenda. And certainly the people of of Fox News who were promoting it didn't care that people were losing wages, jobs, supply chain, all of the things that were wrong. And that's where when that started to happen, Trudeau should have been all over it. And and he he looked like he was just missing in action. All right, Molly, help us wrap all this together. What's legitimate? What was, you know, you know, flames fanned by a misinformation operation? Um, And how should this have gone? From from both Liz and Susan are important here. And I think uh, I, I just sort of pull them together in a slightly different way, which is, you know, if you're guys like Steve Bannon and you study essentially activation and mobilization everywhere, right? Like he reads about the stuff constantly, or at least he walks through airports carrying his provocative books so that the media will write about the things Steve Bannon is reading that week. Right. But we know that these guys focus on protest movements and demonstrations and how they work and what works and, and what's works in the modern context. And what's so interesting about some of the trucker stuff is it pulls together the, the, you know, cheap truckers for Trump, bikers for Trump, like all these fake Facebook groups that were created by the Italian guy to pull these like, oh, well, truckers should support some Joe like Trump, like all of those fake things that like created these, you know, real guys supporting this gross billionaire guy uh, dynamic. That stuff has now been connected to things that are very real. And what 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 hurts me about the trucker thing so much is what has inspired it very clearly is um, the Hong Kong protest movements before they were completely crushed by China. Um, and the way that Hong Kong protesters, the democracy protesters, who were so innovative and so brave and so creative and so guerrilla and how they approached what they were doing, um, would do things like go for a drive and just like clog up all the traffic circles, just like drive around the traffic circles all day as a symbol of protest. You can't stop them. They're not breaking any laws, you know, but there was this real focus on mobilization and symbolism to make what was a small movement become much bigger. And, and it, it, those small initial actions got so much attention and were so brave and so creative that then you had millions of people in the street supporting them because they believed it was real. And we see that exact same thing happening with stuff like this, whatever the initial 20 guys were that were the Canada trucker hat movement, um, found this tremendous resonance support um, because American conservative media 
made it seem as if this were a real thing. And starting in 2015, I've had a network of smart people monitoring like Russian. We, we look at the Russian propaganda space. Like, what are the 12 guys who talk about the things talking about? Are they talking about weird stuff in the Baltics? Like, where do we need to pay attention to? They're talking about this. It may be pretext for something they're planning. And unfortunately, if you're not a foreign country doing the same thing with whatever Tucker Carlson is talking about today, whatever, you know, InfoWars guy is talking about today, then you're not paying attention to how the arrow, the big red arrow might end up pointing at you. And that really sucks. And I hate it. And I can understand why everybody is super angry about it and doesn't really know how to address it. And I'm sure that there were angry calls between Trudeau and his cabinet and their American counterparts on some of these issues. Um, but like, if you're a foreign country, you need to monitor the American crazy space and see if the arrow ends up pointing at you. Um, and this was as, as both of these smart ladies here pointed out, like a big missed thing from can like, you have to take this seriously because these people are super activated. The activation energy is very high. Every day there is a call to action. Give $2 to the truckers, give a dollar to Donald Trump's metal straws, like whatever plastic straws, whatever it is, you know. But every day there's a call to action and they're extremely good about understanding the mindset of organization of movements. And you take that little itty bitty extremist core and you find that resonance with people where there is the legitimate grievance, where there is obviously frustration globally about how the reaction to COVID has been handled, how it is impacting our children and our schools and our lives and our economies. Um, and I think finding ways to channel that energy, channel the resonance space to know the government's talking about these things, they're responding, it's not a big deal, away from the extremists who seem to be the only voice on the issue. Like everybody needs to get smarter about that space. And they're just, we're just not seeing it from democratic governments right now. Everybody is missing this extremely challenging new reality that we live inside. Um, but it's really important. So thank you. And I want to bookmark, I'm going to ask you a question and then I want to bookmark a conversation where we can actually discuss it. Uh, don't feel like you have to answer it now, but, uh, and I posed this to Mike Madrid last time we talked about this, which is given everything you just described as being the way these protests, all protests are probably going to unfold. I mean, we're in a new sort of paradigm here when it comes to uh, freedom of expression and how people are going to be able to sort of Ex, you know, ex, express uh, discontent with their governments, which has been sort of a hallmark of American democracy for a long time and of, of, of democracies all over the world. What does it mean if we're now in a place where every single legitimate protest ends up getting co-opted by um, actors with malice, with a different agenda? And there's there's no simple quick answer to that question, but I do want to sit with it for a while and maybe you and I can uh, discuss um, separately. But I also want our listeners to be thinking about that because it is going to be true across the political spectrum regardless. Um, and 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 as we see now, sort of the way the, the effectiveness of these information operations um, is is going to have a corrupting effect on uh, on a on a on a central piece of uh, sort of democratic governance, and um, not just here but everywhere, and so I just I think that's very frightening uh, for the sort of world we're moving into. So, absolutely. 
Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching under the radar. Susan, what do you have for us? Well, it kind of is something that is a th- to thread and kind of stitch everything we've been talking about together. We've talked about the messaging from Democrats, the president reading the president buying his own PR campaign in Ukraine, uh, Putin and what he's doing as far as setting up his own narrative. And what I am following is something that disturbs me greatly is that the U.S. has not let journalists in bed with the troops going to Poland. And we don't this is the first time in a military action that we're not allowing troops to embed since basically World War II. It's always kind of gone a certain way. While we ha- there are reporters on the ground, they are not embedded with the troops. And there's been quite a protest made by the Military Times, ABC, CBS, NBC. Like They're all pushing back on it. And I think it's something that we have to watch because if we don't let our journal, we're we're talking about fighting for freedom. One of the basic freedoms is freedom of press. If we're not, for some reason, if we're concerned about not letting our journalists cover it because they they'll offer an alternative message from the White House or the State Department, that Mm. really scares me. So I'm going to keep looking Mm. at that. It's a good flag. I hadn't seen that. Liz, what do you got? Um, so two quick things. The first is since we've been recording, there was a news alert that the, um, you know, and I don't know how newsworthy it is right now in this moment, but something for sure to follow is that Republicans are now saying Democrats are easing COVID restrictions because of the midterms. And so I honestly just like can't enough applaud the Republican communications machine that if Democrats didn't ease the restrictions, they would hold their feet to the fire. And now that they are easing restrictions, they're saying it's a totally political play. So honestly, I just applaud them because they are all over these issues from both sides at all times, which is pretty amazing. Um, So that was something that just popped up. And then the other thing, and Ron, you and I have talked about this at length, is just staffing, staffing, staffing. The workforce shortage in this country is a very real thing. And maybe we can talk about it on another roundup, but the the stat that caught my eye this morning is that Amazon just raised its maximum base pay to $350,000 from $160,000. And it's because of how competitive it is to attract talent after the great resignation. I mean, Amazon is making it very appealing to work there. And just, it was an Axios piece this morning talking about how CEOs are struggling to find talent and to address the staffing crisis. Again, it's in every industry all over the country, but um, CEOs are having a harder time in 2022 addressing workforce shortages than they did at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. So definitely something I'm keeping my eye on. Everybody looking for a job, go get those Bezos bucks. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Molly, what's bubbling in your teapot? I don't want to take the Bezos bucks, but sometimes I really feel like I should. Uh, No one wants to to pay to fight Russia. So maybe we should all just go pay to send packages to ourselves. Um, uh, You know, I think, and I'll give, I'll give the administration, which I don't do very often with any administration ever, a little bit of credit, which is, you know, we're all super focused on the news hysteria of Ukraine, which is great. You know, we should, we should understand what's happening there. But I actually think there is, um, 
and the administration has made a point of keeping the eye on other balls while this is happening in a way that both frustrates me that I don't think they're focused strategically enough on Russia and Ukraine, um, but that is good in that we are able to do, you know, juggle multiple balls at the same time. There's been uh, productive stuff happening in our relationships with allies in Asia. Blinken had a pretty good trip out there. Uh, to to wave the flag and 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 rally the crowd, as it were. Um, I actually think that um, uh, the administration has done a decent job of uh, not allowing too many resources to be distracted from what they should be doing. It's just that we need more stuff focused on our global strategy everywhere. Um, but I think there's some positive stories in that space that are worth keeping an eye on because I think. Um, there are things happening that could cohere together into a whole. They just have not yet. <sighs> there is a lot. Okay. I just have two quick things. Um, one is that I saw uh, uh, the governor of Colorado, Democratic governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, announced that Colorado is going to begin accepting cryptocurrencies for tax bills. Keep an eye on this, folks, because it is not... Uh, it is only the beginning. It is only the beginning. Um, second is uh, opposition research going hyper-local. So our friend Lena Erickson from Third Way, Politicology Regular, sent this to me. And this is this is actually extremely encouraging to me as I have been sort of, uh, you know, beating the drum about how Democrats need to start fighting seriously. Uh, like Republicans do. So the group American Bridge, liberal uh, liberal group American Bridge, launched a $10 million initiative, which is part of a much larger initiative. But this one is going to fund sharp-toothed opposition researchers, uh, which are basically have a mission to uh, influence races for election administration in a dozen key states. So like way down ballot, way unsexy races, candidates who never would get any attention or scrutiny. This group is going to fund Republican style oppo machines to go dig up dirt on them and put them into ads. And I think uh, what I would like to say to this as a fan of the Mandalorian is this is the way. Sorry, I I just I really wanted to use that. This is the way. Good good for you, Democrats. Like this about is time. I've, I've been yeah, saying, about, Susan, I thought you were mouthing. It's about time. That's exactly. Yeah. What <laughs> no, I actually was voting. It's about effing time. Yeah, but. it's about time. Yes. Ah. Amen. Susan, Liz, Molly, <laughs> we went this entire uh, uh, episode without really discussing Trump much at all, which is what we're about to do when we head over to the after party, a.k.a. Politicology Plus. Um, before we do, where can everybody find you on the Internet, Liz? I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert. Susan? On Twitter at Del Percio S. And Molly? I'm on Twitter at Molly Q, M-C-K-E-W, uh, or greatpower.us is my newsletter. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, 
You can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.